Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. First for breaking news and the best live sport. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. Good evening and welcome to Science Nights on 5 Live. I'm Dr Chris Smith and with my fellow naked scientists between now and 9pm we'll be delving into the world of microbiology to discover what's living on us and in us and how these bugs can control whether we gain weight or stay slim, how they cause disease and new ways to stop them. Plus, we'll show you how you can build your own laser pointer-powered microscope to see what's living in your lavatory. All that plus your calls, emails, texts and tweets. Call us on 0500 909 693 or text 85. 058. The lines are open now. Five Live Science Night. Call with your questions. 0500 909 693. This is Science Night on Five Live with the naked scientists Chris Smith and Victoria Gill and our kitchen scientists Dave Ansell and Ben Fausler. In this hour, we're putting the world of microbes under the microscope. How do the bugs living in us and on us affect how healthy we are? or even how likely we are to gain weight. With us are Manchester microbiologist Joe Verron, who works on how bacteria grow, Justin Sonnenberg, who's at Stanford in California. He looks at how microbes lend us genes to help us break down foods that we would otherwise not be able to consume. And Nottingham microbiologist Liz Socket studies a parasitic microbe that hunts down, invades and destroys other bacteria and might be useful as a living antibiotic to treat a range of infections. So let's have your science questions and comments for them, please. Phone in now on 0500 909 693 or text 85058. You can, of course, watch us on the webcam at bbc.co.uk uk forward slash five live and you can email or tweet us as well brain power science night on five live the microbes that live on us and in us outnumber our own cells by 50 to 1 and that means that we're almost passengers in our own bodies now some of these bugs are beneficial but others can be very harmful manchester metropolitan university microbiologist joe verron is working on ways to stop bad bugs from growing on surfaces where they're not wanted and that includes operating tables, worktops, and even false teeth. Hello, Joe. Hi, hi. With normal teeth, not false <coughs> teeth. Yeah, it's not self-interest <laughs> that's motivating this. How are you doing this? Uh, well, we're interested in two different areas. One is the organisms actually surviving on surfaces where they can't particularly grow. And the other is where they have the opportunity to grow and form biofilms. So they're two very different sorts of environments. What's a biofilm? A biofilm is a community of microorganisms on a surface. So the organisms uh, are stuck on a surface and they have the opportunity to grow. It's usually um, where you have liquid running over solids. So, say... In your, in your water pipes or in your mouth, across your teeth, across your dentures if you had them. So it's a solid liquid interface. And so the liquid that's flowing over those microorganisms brings food to them and takes away their waste products. So they're able to multiply and produce these rather beautiful looking biofilms actually. So why is a biofilm bad? Um, not all biofilms are bad. Um, the vast majority of microorganisms attached on the surface uh, are attached on surfaces all over the planet, 
and uh, biothumbs and microbiology often gets a bad name but actually uh, the vast majority of microorganisms are very lovely um, there are some nice uh, to <laughs> sticking up for the humble microbes um, so on our body we are uh, as you already said heaving with uh, microorganisms and those are called our commensal flora our normal flora and we live very happily with them and they actually help keep um, pathogenic microorganisms at bay. So um, the biofilms that we have on our skin and in our gut and in our mouths are very much part of our normal flora. So it's the, um, it's the incoming pathogens that we want to keep at bay. How can you stop them doing this? What are you doing with these surfaces that might be able to disrupt the ability to form these biofilms? Uh, well, when we look at surfaces that are exposed to the uh, exposed to the air, um, the organisms don't really have opportunity to grow. So, if you look at things like um, any contact surfaces that you might frequently touch, there isn't really a lot of um, food there, but the organisms can be deposited on those surfaces and can survive potentially. Bef- um, until they're given the opportunity perhaps to be transferred onto somewhere else where they could grow. So, for example, from a chicken leg onto a chopping board and then into onto another piece of meat and then into your mouth, for example. So um, by keeping the surfaces as clean as possible and therefore making sure that the surfaces are perhaps particularly hard and resistant to wear, but also very easy to clean, are some of the strategies that we can have to maintain hygienic surfaces. What about... um actually actively stopping things growing on surfaces aren't people producing surfaces that leach various chemicals or are impregnated with things that bugs really hate so they avoid them like the plague excuse the pun (laughs) um there are lots of strategies to make surfaces antimicrobial Um, there are some ways that you can put chemicals in them there are other ways that you can modify their physical properties so making sure that they are smooth and hard is a way of um, making it easier to remove organisms from them um People are putting in, uh, well, some of the work that we have been doing is putting essential oils into surfaces. Essential oils are often antimicrobial and uh, we can help to um, prevent organisms from being able to multiply on those surfaces where the essential oils are. Another way is uh, we have titanium dioxide, which um, becomes antimicrobial when it's irradiated. So that's, again, a physical way of disposing of the uh, microorganisms on the surface. Another way, of course, is by putting in some sort of toxic chemical that leaches out of the surface and kills the microorganisms. But that's not particularly desirable because the surface is is active and you don't really want that necessarily. If you've got a comment or a question for us, call in now. It's 0500 909 693 on the telephone or you can text in on 85058 or email chris at thenakerscientist.com. We're talking microbiology. And we do have a caller on the line. We have Bavish in London um, who has a question that, Joe, you might be able to help with. Bavish, what's your question? Oh, uh, good evening, everyone. Um, Thank you. It's a brilliant show. Um, Yeah, basically the question is, yeah... um, Look, um, with all these discoveries of exoplanets um, that we know are fairly ubiquitous, yeah, even in our galaxy, and um, with obviously with Kepler and other telescopes, um, you, you, you know, um, with uh, micro lensing and so forth, yeah. But see, with the chemical signatures that we're getting uh, feedback of different exoplanets and so forth, yeah. Um, so, if you look at the chemistry of our own planet itself, uh, look, uh, you leave uh, a loaf of bread or something unattended a few days, you've got uh, bacteria and so for fungus, it'll grow. I'm not coming around your house for lunch, (laughs) Bavis. So I I guess what you're asking is, what's the likelihood that we've got life flourishing on other planets as well? Because an exoplanet means a planet orbiting a a star 
not our own. So what do you think, Joe? What's the, the likelihood of ubiquity of life elsewhere in the, in the, the galaxy in the universe, perhaps? <laughs> From a chopping board up to... Uh, <laughs> I would think in the, uh, the, the vast expanse of space there would be um, the possibility of some, something, I would think, and if it were going to be anything, it would quite possibly be microorganisms. They are the most um, successful living thing on our planet. They've been here the longest... And they are hugely diverse in terms of their metabolic abilities. So some of them can use a whole range of different, really unusual materials as their um, energy source. So if there is anything, uh, it's probably going to be microbial. Uh, one quick one to sneak in. Terry Lloyd on the text, Joe, uh, wonders, um, talking of all kinds of things you can live on, how is it that cats and dogs can lick their bums and keep it clean? <laughs> but if humans uh, did that, we would be very ill. Now, is that a myth? Is how it true? You know well, exactly. That's what I'm going to say. Do we know that? If I were able to, I'm not a contortionist, but were I able to lick my own bum clean, would I likely succumb to some kind of nasty infection or would actually I be OK? I mean, look, you must have read Fifty Shades of Grey. There's all Actually, sorts of things going on. Um, clearly you have. But, uh, yeah, you can, um, well, I can use my imagination. <laughs> Later Christmas I think there you, is... Um, yeah, I mean, when you... When you uh, let me think about a nice way to put this. I mean... Uh, you can put it a nasty way if you like. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to... Uh, I wouldn't want... To, there, is, there are ways of passing disease. Of, it's called the faecal-oral route, in fact. So that is one of the ways of transmitting disease that can cause um, sort of gut infection. So that is the faecal-oral route. So there obviously is I mean, a way of doing it. Viruses will go that way, um, Viruses they? will do it. Um, yeah. yeah, there's loads of microorganisms. So cholera is one, in fact, as well. And then there are... Um, herpes viruses and many other ones so i just probably best avoided them (laughs) well well, sticking with that bit of the body uh, our intestines are home to billions of bacteria previously we thought they were just these microbial freeloaders but now we're beginning to realize that they actually do make a massive contribution to human health and they can even control whether we put on weight or stay slim justin sonnenberg is a microbiologist from stanford university in california and he works on the relationship we have with our intestinal flora hello justin hello so when we talk about good bacteria what are they yeah, well, it's been appreciated for quite some time that, uh, you know, hundreds of years that there are microorganisms that live on and in our bodies. Um, but really, there's been this explosion of research over the past five to 10 years that has really mapped the complexity and density of these com- communities in um, various body sites. Um, this uh, community is known as the microbiota, and um, it's uh, become clear that it's wired in and controls many facets of our biology. You hit on a really important point at the top of the show, Chris, that these microbes that live on our bodies outnumber our human cells by um, somewhere on the order of 10 to 100-fold. And so that means by cell number, we're actually more microbial than we are human. And so while Most people think of the human body as a collection of human cells. It's actually a a composition, a composite organism that's composed of both human cells and microbial cells that come together to work in a a really um, integrated fashion that is still uh, poorly understood and, and, and very complex. We tend to think of the human genome as um, encoding these um, uh, proteins that that constitute our biology, but really there's a second genome that greatly influences our biology, the collective genome of these microbial communities that's known as the microbiome. And um, 
this collective genome uh, in, encodes uh, somewhere on the order or, or includes on the order of uh, a hundredfold um, more or maybe even a, as many as a thousandfold more genes than our human genome. And so there's really a, a vast complexity of um, of genetics that is associated with our body that we're just beginning to understand. So, Justin, maybe you could comment on that sort of battle between good and bad bacteria, if there's any sense or clinical evidence for the good of taking probiotics. We've got a question from Mac in Norfolk who said he was taking a course of good bacteria or probiotics after taking a course of antibiotics, and is this going to do anything beneficial for him? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. So, um, you know, the... The battle between good and bad bacteria is an interesting one, both from a biological perspective and also a scientific research perspective. Um, Historically, over the past hundred years, there's been a a major focus of research on the bad pathogenic bacteria that cause disease. And we're just beginning to appreciate now that they're actually just a small fraction of the microbes that are important to our biology. And when we do something like take antibiotics, it... um, it actually ha- it wreaks havoc on this resident community. And so while we may eradicate a pathogen, there's actually a trade-off there, and we disrupt this normal um, commensal microbiota, and in doing so, open the door for other diseases to take hold and other pathogens to, um, to take off and do more damage. And um, so... P- Pete says, agreeing with you on the text, 85058, Justin, he says um, 97% of all the bugs that we hold are harmless or friendly, and the best way to fight bacteria is not to go to your doctor asking for antibiotics, a sensible but paranoid precaution in personal life. Uh, he, he says he's a doctor. Uh, we've actually had a lot of headlines created here recently with people saying that there is over-prescription of antibiotics. And I think you've hit on a very important point there, which is when we give people antibiotics, it does actually damage that very unique flora they have inside them, doesn't it? So what could be the consequences? Because one of the things that people have been looking at is weight um, and why microbes might make a difference to how much you weigh. Could, could actually taking antibiotics affect your weight? Because farm animals fed antibiotics get fatter, don't they? Yeah, so there's some um, preliminary data. Um, um, Marty Blazer's group at NYU has uh, some interesting research suggesting that um, uh, long-term uh, use of uh, antibiotics at, at low levels in uh, in an animal model can actually result in increased weight gain, so just the disturbance of the normal microbiota for a long period of time. The mechanism by which... Um, Animals, farm animals, gain weight more rapidly um, when they're um, using or administered antibiotics is is still poorly understood. And really, um, there's been um, m- much association in the past five years between um, human metabolism and the microbiota and the suggestion that the microbiota may um, influence things like obesity, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes. And um, there clearly are associations, but the mechanistic links as to how the microbes in our body are actually um, doing this, what um, leads from the microbes to our metabolism, is um, you know an area that's under very active investigation and, and still fairly poorly understood. And, and sorry, sorry to cut across you there. And on that topic, actually, of, of, of farm animals, we have a call from Douglas in Knighton. He's got a question for you, Justin. Douglas, what's your question? My question is, we're allegedly concerned about obesity, and yet people boast about putting growth enhancers in the fam- animal feed. So what's your opinion about that? Well, um, you know, the... the um, 
goal of uh, many farmers is to make their animals as um, big and um, productive in as short a period of time as possible. And this contrasts with um, what is optimal for humans, which um, is not to become as, as big as quickly as possible. And so there are uh, certainly different strategies there, but maybe some common mechanisms in play. Justin Sullenberg from Stanford, please stay with us. Uh, Alan is on the phone from Newton, Hab- Newton Abbott Endeavour, wants to talk to you, Joe. Okay. Fire away, mm. Alan. Oh, hi, yes, I'm in Dawlish in Devon. Hello. Um, could you tell me how often you should change your chopping boards in the kitchen? Chopping uh, boards. I think the main thing is that you uh, you keep your chopping board well wiped and clean. I don't know how quickly you have to, uh, you don't have to change them that regularly just make sure that you clean it very thoroughly with hot water don't use um don't chop raw food and then use the same chopping board for cooked food afterwards it's uh, it's sort of basic hygiene really we've actually got another question about chopping boards on the text joe from uh, henry in halsmere he wants to know what type is the best type of chopping board to use for hygiene is there a type that you would recommend um well, personally, I just use I use a plastic one and make sure that I that I wash it in very hot water in the dishwasher. Um, people use um, wood chopping boards because it's believed that some of the tannins that can come out of wood can call, can have sort of antimicrobial properties. But again, with um, wood chopping boards, you need to make sure that uh, they're well dried as well. Thank you, Joe. Joe Verin from Manchester Metropolitan University. If you have a question about anything microbiology, infectivity or perhaps even norovirus, then give us a call here. It's Science Night with the Naked Scientists on 5 Live. The phone number 0500 909 693. The text number 85058. You can also email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Now, still to come on Science Night. Naked Scientists, caught short. We'll be going down the toilet. The Bare Essentials Naked Science on 5 Live Not all of the bugs in the intestine, excuse me, are welcome. <laughs> uh, some, like Salmonella or Campylobacter, are common causes of diarrheal diseases, diseases, which can require a course of antibiotics to help to clear them up. But there might also be the possibility of using another type of microbe as a living antibiotic to deal with this problem. Delo vibrio is a small bacterium that hunts down and invades other bacteria. It multiplies inside them, bursts them, and then escapes in pursuit of fresh prey. So does a dose of these so does a dose of these clear up a dose of something else, so to speak? Nottingham microbiologist Liz Socket works on these bacteria. Hello, Liz. Hello, Chris. So where do they normally live, these Delo Vibrio? Well, surprisingly, they live almost everywhere. Um, soil, water, uh, and um, you can find them in the faeces of human beings uh, and also in uh, mouth swabs of human beings. Um, but they haven't been studied very much in, in humans until very, very recently. So tell us a little bit about their life cycle when they do this invasion of other bacteria. What do they actually do? How do they do it and what happens? Well, I suppose um, with it being almost hogmanay, um, a way to envisage uh, a Della Vibrio is maybe like uh, um, a pork sausage trying to invade a haggis. If the haggis is the pathogenic bacterium and the Della Vibrio is the pork sausage, um, then they actually invade through the outer layer of, of the bacterium, seal up the outer layer and then eat the 
the nasty bacterium from inside and they have a set of digestive juices which they release one at a time to break down the components of the pathogenic bacteria. So really they're eating inside for a couple of hours inside that bacterium which they have killed and then when everything's eaten up they then burst out through the outer layer and go on and seek more bacteria. It sounds like alien, doesn't it? It is. It's fantastic, really. you've, You've made a video of this on YouTube. You've got these glowing green bacteria. Yes, with the sort of silhouette of the uh, Del Vibrio inside. Um, At this point, they've invaded inside and then they're starting just to digest all of the goodies inside the pathogen. And then eventually they themselves get bigger and replicate using those foods. Um, But when they burst out, they are harmless bacteria to humans and animals. They're just dangerous to bacteria. So does this mean then that you could potentially apply them? Because if they can track down and hunt down certain microorganisms, because they can't harm our cells, can they? That's right. Could you therefore use them in a therapeutic way? Well, we've been doing some trials um, where we've looked at the level of salmonella in the guts of chickens, and we've given chickens drinks of living Delavibrio or just drinks of buffers. Um, we crushed the Delavibrio, um, we mixed the Delavibrio with crushed um, antacid so that uh, they, the chicken they don't get would swallow them. Yeah, would swallow them without getting indigestion. Um, and then we looked at the levels of salmonella in the gut and we found that they were reduced 90% in the Dalvibio treatment compared to um, just the, the buffer control. So, so, they, so they had an effect in the chickens. They did not, in our experiment, eradicate the salmonella. And so there's a way to go to actually produce a medicine that might do that, but they certainly reduced the salmonella numbers. So if they're naturally in humans, yes. does this mean potentially when we get an upset stomach... One of the reasons could be that we've lost our Delo Vibrio and that therefore other microbes that they would normally have preyed on go out of kilter, they, they overgrow because there's nothing to remove them for a while. It, it could be. Um, and also it could be that, uh, that a new pathogen has arrived. And not all pathogens are eaten by Delavibrio, but a large range are. Um, but I think one of the things we just don't know is whether if you're a person who really never gets sick and has an iron constitution, can eat almost anything and never get an upset stomach, it could be that you have a resident population of Delavibrio. And there just hasn't been really a lot of biology done to, to look at this. I think um, scientists are just starting to look to look at the levels of Delvibrio in the human gut. We have a question. Um, we have a, a phone call actually from Tommy in the Scottish Highlands. Tommy, what's your question? Uh, it's actually connected with what the what the, the scientist has just mentioned there. I had a serious uh, case of cellulitis about four years ago. Uh, I've had since then had another two. Cellulitis, of course, being infection in the the skin and soft tissues, isn't it? It was was a result of, um, I was diving on the west coast of Scotland and uh, stubbed stubbed my finger on a barnacle. And that was what the the doctor said that was what effectively started it. Uh, I was given a massive dose of antibiotics. Since that day, I have not been able to eat gluten. Whereas before that, I could have eaten anything. I had an iron constitution. Um, I've been tested for celiac and they say it's negative. Is there a possibility that this, the, the, the antibiotic has completely killed all the bacteria in my gut, Liz, do including you... the good ones? I think I think it's quite possible. This is probably more Justin's area than mine, actually. But but I I do think there's been probably a big shift in who's who in your gut, and and what they digest for you. And so it so it could well be that 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 is part of the reason for your change in your digestive function. But I guess Justin might know more than me. Yeah, let me just add there that um, you know the after antibiotic use, um, there's uh, a common 
side effect, which is known as antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Oftentimes, there's a bacterial cause of this, like Clostridium difficile, that can uh, is a, a pathogen that um, lives in many of us at very low levels, typically doesn't cause any problems. But when you wipe out your re resident microbiota with antibiotics, it allows this pathogen to emerge and cause disease. And for a long time, it, there was really um, no good effective treatment for uh, recurrent C. difficile-associated colitis um, that occurred after antibiotic use. And recently, um, researchers, and this actually gets back to a question earlier in the show having to do with dogs and cats licking their bums and why this doesn't make them sick, um, an effective treatment, it appears, for... Um, C. difficile-associated colitis is what's known as um, a fecal transplant, where uh, feces from a healthy human donor are given to a person that's suffering from digestive problems like colitis, and it effectively reboots their microbiota, establishes a healthy microbiota, um, establishes um, a, a normal interaction with the host and eradicates the pathogen. And while we're talking about the effects of antibiotics as well, we've got Mike from Garstang in Lancashire on the phone. Have you got a question for Justin, Mike? Fire away. Yeah, hi, Justin. I was wondering, can the use of antibiotics in animals cause resistance to those antibiotics in the human population? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And there's been a, a lot of debate about this and a lot of research trying to track resistance genes um, to try to answer that question specifically. Um, it's clear that antibiotic use, um, widespread antibiotic use can lead to the um, uh, spread of what are known as antibiotic resistance genes. That is the, the genes that um, confer resistance to the microbes of the, for these antibiotics. And um, once those become widespread, those bacteria can then um, transmit either themselves that are antibiotic resistant or transmit those genes laterally to other microbes. And so I think it's very likely that um, antibiotic use in farm animals can lead to um, the increased prevalence of uh, antibiotic resistance that could affect humans directly. Thanks, Justin. Um, Joe, one for you, both by text and someone asking something similar. We'll go to on the phone in a second. Anna Senior, can you please clean up, clear up, or clean up, maybe, an ongoing conversation between me and my husband? Is cold water and soap effective for washing hands, or is hot water and soap required? How, how does different cleaning regimens make a difference? And that will answer alongside Al is in London. Hello, Al. Hello. You've got a similar sort of question. Yeah, uh, good evening. Um, there are dozens of products in the market for hand washing and even dishwashing, uh, uh, sorry, um, like uh, dishwashing liquids like Fay and, and all the other liquids. They all contain um, anti-germ stuff, which is supposed to be antibiotic probably. Yeah. Uh, now, you use all these and isn't it dangerous on a long term to use these, thereby causing some normal flora to become mutant and... Uh, cause, you know, some. Sort so, of so what do you think, Joe? Um, do you think um, just soap and water okay, or are we actually doing more harm than good by escalating and using more powerful stuff? Um, I think just for domestic hand washing, then then soap and water is fine. But I think um, in a hospital environment, obviously there are um, significantly more uh, microorganisms that are pathogenic around. So hand sanitizers are used, which have more um, antimicrobial components to them. Um, detergents 
are present in, um, well, soaps. They'll solubilise lots of fat and that should help to, to clean the hands. So um, depending on where you are, it's, it's uh, how important it can be. Joe Veron, thank you very much. Uh, also, Liz Socket is with us and Justin Sonnenberg. We're talking microbiology. This is Science Night on Five Live with me, Chris Smith, and with Victoria Gill. More about bugs and bowels coming up in this hour. Uh, and still to come, of course, our kitchen scientists, Ben and Dave, they'll be nipping to the nearest loo with their laser pointer powered microscope that they're building here in the studio, and they'll reveal the microbial life that's uh, lurking around your U bend. Meanwhile, do send us your infectious comments and questions. Call us on 0500 909 693 or text 058 or you can email or tweet us at Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists on 5 Live, the bare essentials. You're listening to Science Nights on 5 Live with the Naked Scientists, Chris Smith and Victoria Gill. We're discussing the microbial world in this hour and what's living in us and on us and how these bugs can actually help to keep us healthy. And we're taking your questions and comments. Do give us a call on 0500 909 693 or text 85058 or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. And coming up, Ben Vowsler and Dave Ansell, our kitchen scientists, will show you how to build a laser-powered microscope to reveal the bacteria lurking in the loo and other salubrious places they've even been to the blue peter pond which is just not far from here joe very quickly could you please answer this question because when you were talking about cleaning hands just now you you didn't mention the hot or cold water and it's upset some people and they've texted in on 85058 <laughs> to say could you please say hot or cold water yes hot. or no joe says hot water is more effective victoria <laughs> and we're getting a lot of calls in now including matthew from dunstable who has a question on the microbiology issue go ahead matthew Oh, good evening, guys. Um, my question is, what's the difference between a microbiologist and a biologist? Microbiologists are really small biologists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, well, I mean, Liz Socket, you're a microbiologist. How, why do you call yourself a microbiologist as opposed to a biologist, or do you call yourself both? Um, I suppose I'm both, really. Uh, I live in a world where maybe I'm working on the lions, the Della Vibrio, um, and other people work on the zebras, who are the other bacteria that the, the Della Vibrio chase after and eat. Um, most things you can see um, in microbiology, you can see in biology as well. Um, Mono, who's a great microbiologist, said, what is true of elephants is mostly true of E. coli as well, which, which means that all biology is the same, whether it's micro or macro. I mean, if we're honest, the number of genes that we actually share with a bacteria is really very high, isn't it? The same gene, if inserted into a microbe, will work just as it does in us. And many of their me metabolic genes and things work both in them and us. We have the same genes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, human cells um, have things in them called mitochondria, which help us digest our lunch and get energy for growth and, uh, and, and uh, moving around. And they are actually vestigial microbes that evolved with humans way back in the early stages of Earth's evolution. And Liz, while we're picking your brain, um, we have a, a, a on the text we have a question. They didn't leave their name, but they're they're asking about bacteriophages. They've they've heard of these things oh, being yes. used instead of antibiotics. Could you explain what a bacteriophage is, and and could they replace antibiotics? Um, well, bacteriophage are even smaller than bacteria, and they're they're tiny little viruses that attack bacteria instead of viruses that say attack human cells and make us sick. Um, so these little viruses, they look a bit like um, the Apollo lunar landing module. They have a, a kind of octagonal head and then they have spikes that allow them to attach to bacteria and they inject their genes into bacteria and kill them really? now yeah, they are very cool they could be they could be useful and there there are actually um, some products for dogs ear infections that are being trialed at the moment by veterinarians to, to use these phages against particular bacteria in the ear 
Um, they do work a little bit like a lock and a key, though, um, in that certain particular bacteria are attacked by particular phage. So you have to know what infection you have to use the phage. Uh, my Della Vibria are a bit more Catholic in their tastes for uh, eating lots of different bacteria. And now it's, it's complicated stuff in there then, isn't it? We've got Vivian on the phone from Saltley in North Wales. What's your question, Vivian? Hello, well, thank you. Well, I've probably become very germ-phobic in my old age. But for a long time, I've been worried about what happens to the quality of the water which goes from the, you know, the main supply up through my house into my loft space into a tank which has never had a lid on it and then into the... Um, and it's not allowed to be heated to more than 70 degrees. Then it comes down into my kitchen for me to do my washing up or into the bathroom. And um, it seems to me, you know, it's um, how can it be okay? Is it clean? Joe, can you answer that question? <laughs> We're also talking about hot water. Is the hot water okay when it comes out of the tap? Um, are, are you going to, you're not going to be drinking it, are you? No, no, certainly not drinking it, but I'm going to be washing up in it. Well, I think that would be okay then. I mean, if you've got your hot water that's coming out and you're doing your washing up in it and you've got your um, your detergent as well with your hot water, I think uh, I think they would be okay. Thanks, Joe. Robert's in the Isle of Wight. Hello, Robert. Oh, uh, good evening, team. Thanks for a fantastically interesting programme. Um, my question relates to norovirus. Um, I live on the Isle of Wight, and um, the Isle of Wight is particularly prone to norovirus for two reasons. A, because we're quite close to Southampton, which is the uh, busiest cruise, ter cruise terminal anywhere in, in the UK, and lots of people come down there, uh, and, and that infects Southampton, and some of that comes across the Isle of Wight for people joining cruises or leaving. But the other reason why we get it over here is um, at this time of year, the Isle of Wight, um, it's the second busiest time of the year for coach trips to the Isle of Wight. And people come down, say, from Lancashire, where the only hospital in the UK is currently closed to all, all visitors because of norovirus. So they're coming down to the Isle of Wight and one of them on the coach has norovirus and then it contaminates people on the coach and then it contaminates the hotel, etc., etc. Yes. Um, now, my question is, um, um, I don't have a car and I travel extensively on, on public transport. There's a very good public transport network on the Isle of Wight. Um, but um, I seem to recollect when you were talking about this recently, you were, you were saying that, I think you said that even when, if people with norovirus sneeze, they're emitting norovirus germs. And my big concern is um, the public transport itself. Um, in times like this of high risk, should the bus company be, you know, sterilising the, the handrails and things with a, a really good high quality um, cleaner like the one they use for C. difficile, anti-chlorine, yeah. uh, or something like that? Because, you know, I've travelled on a couple of buses recently. Yeah, and you're worried about what you might have. I mean, you probably, your, your risks and thoughts are probably well founded, Robert, because... Uh, there was a, a study done by Val Curtis from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and she went to train stations across the length and breadth of Britain and swabbed commuters' hands. This was in 2008. And 
just sent the samples back to the lab to see what they could grow. And it's really interesting because the further north you went up the country, the filthier people became. And they found that people down south had fewer Ooh, germs on their hands than people further north. And they found that in London, 9% of people on average had faecal forms on their hands. And when you went north to, I think they went as far as Glasgow, they found uh, that it went to 29%. And the interesting thing was women on average were filthier than men. <laughs> and that being an administrator was a risk factor for having far higher faecal carriage than, than uh, doing yeah. a, a manual job or being a labourer. But going by coach was a particular risk factor, they found. People who described journeys by coaches were much more likely to be carrying these faecal forms. Now, the point is, if you've got lots of bacteria on your skin, you're also more likely to carry viruses. And as a result of having more viruses on your skin, you're, you're might more likely to pick up noro, aren't you? So... I guess you can't argue with data, although I'm mildly affronted. Yes, um, me too. <laughs> well, coughs and sneezes spread diseases, but uh, can the same be said for the intestinal equivalent? And could this spread infections in hospital? Well, Ben Vausler went to the University of Surrey to see microbiologist Simon Parks to find out. I have two sons, Joe and um, Josh, who are age five and seven, and they've developed a sort of obsession with this homemade sort of biological prank that um, they've obsessed about sort of farting. And my partner and I, Diane, are constantly sort of reprimanding them for doing this, but they sort of still carry on despite this. And I thought, why do we find this so offensive and why is it dangerous? And can I demonstrate this to my children to stop them doing it? So I, I thought of some experiments where I could actually sort of prove whether or not farts could transmit sort of various um, bacteria. So... What I've done is, is taken some um, McConkie agar plates that are very good at culturing um, faecal bacteria and done some very crude experiments where we've exposed the plates to people farting in terms of a, a, a naked fart with no pants and no jeans on and also people farting with underpants and jeans on. <laughs> so you've set this up by uh, passing wind, shall we say, on a, what's called a McConkie's agar plate. And I believe that you actually have some of these plates to show us. yes. We've now moved into the lab. Now, one of these plates was farted on through jeans and pants, and the other one was exposed to flatulence completely bare. Now, we do like a bit of naked science here, of course, but the two plates, one of them clearly has some colonies on, and the other one looks completely clean. So, Simon, which one's which? The plate that's totally clean is, is the one that was exposed with pants and jeans on, so it's obviously the pants and jeans are being very effective at filtering out any um, faecal bacteria, but the plate that was exposed to the, the naked emission has a splattering of red sort of colonies on it, and they're very indicative of um, E. coli, that's a very common sort of faecal bacteria that's a good indicator of faecal contamination. So we are definitely transmitting bacteria with, with every flatulence? Yes, absolutely, yes. I mean, there's such huge numbers of bacteria um, in a stool that it's inevitable that we will transmit bacteria after flatulence. There's a lot of bacteria in the gut, and of those in the gut, um, a vast majority are strictly anaerobic, so they can't grow in the presence of, of, of a normal atmosphere. They, they can only grow where there's no oxygen. So obviously those bacteria, whilst they might have landed on the agar plate, that they wouldn't have been able to grow on the agar plate. But the ones that we have isolated are probably E. coli or coliforms that are very common in the gut. And they are very robust bacteria. So they will grow in air, without air, and on agar plates. So these are very capable of surviving outside. So the fact that I picked them up on the, the McConkie agar plate, these would be very capable of surviving outside in the environment for hours, if not days. 
But could there be anything else that gets transmitted? Is there anything that might get through the genes? There are obviously viruses that, that are many orders of magnitude smaller than bacteria. So things like the norovirus, which is a very common cause of um, vomiting, and some of the, the astroviruses that, that are common in, in causing diarrhoea are, are quite likely to, to pass through the very fine holes in things like underpants and, and jeans. And did you show your sons? Have, have you convinced them now that farting in the house is not right? They were quite shocked. One of the first things they asked me were, are they friendly bacteria or are they bad bacteria? And I had to tell them they were relatively friendly bacteria. I mean, most of us fart about a, a pint glass worth of, of sort of flatus volume every day. Most of us actually fart during our sleep when all our muscles are relaxed. So even those, those of us that don't fart during the day almost... All of those will fart during the night unknowingly, so it's, it's very difficult to prevent in a hospital environment. Surrey University's Simon Parks researching the ability of flatulence to spread diseases, but as he says, at just one thirty thousandth of a millimetre across, norovirus particles and similar are even smaller than bacteria, and so pants probably will provide you with very little protection. Oof. We're taking your questions and comments on these issues. It's 0500 909 693 if you want to give us a call or text 85058 or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. And on Twitter we have a really fascinating question for, from Sarah Barrett who wants to ask of Justin um, about breastfeeding. How do the antibodies in breast milk help her baby beat a tummy bug and how are those, how are those bugs not broken down in her stomach? Yeah, well, that's a, a very good question. Breast milk um, has uh, many uh, very important bioactive compounds. Antibodies are one of those, and um, it uh, you know is a way that the mother can uh, transmit uh, properties of her immune system to um, sop up some um, bad uh, microbes that might be lurking in the um, stomach or intestine of her infant. Um, the stomach is fairly effective at killing many things that uh, many microbes that that are passing through our digestive system, but certainly um, not 100% effective. And these antibodies are a way to supplement that. One other really important compound in breast milk are um, carbohydrates or oligosaccharides that the um, mother um, produces. And it's for a long time been unclear why she would do this since the baby cannot digest them. And there's been some recent evidence that the mother is producing these carbohydrates in her breast milk that are more complex than lactose. Um, you know, they're, they're called oligosaccharides. And um, the primary purpose of these compounds, it appears, is to help feed friendly microbes, enabling them to seed the um, newly formed ecosystem in the infant's intestine. Justin, um, we've got this question from Richard in Bristol that's sort of similar to a text um, on 85058 from Richard in Surbiton. And they're both saying, one of them says he turned into a gardener recently. I don't know how you turn into a gardener. Uh, but anyway, he says, I always have dirty hands. I eat lunch with dirty hands. I disagree with antibacterial wipes and sprays. I believe in building up resistance to bacteria. The other Richard's saying, well, what about this, this evidence for hygiene, um, excessive hygiene causing a risk of getting more infections and things? Can you comment on what your work shows in terms of the good thing that bacteria do to educate our immune system as we develop and having them there, the importance of having microbes in, in our guts? 
Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, the, um, a portion of the show, it's clear that um, some of the, the callers are um, very nervous about microbes and um, rightly so in cases of uh, norovirus, if there's severe diarrheal disease, the transmission of viral particles is certainly worrisome. But the, the and, and certainly the biofilms that uh, Joe studies and eradicating them from important surfaces like those in hospitals is incredibly important. But all of this sanitization comes at a cost of eradicating microbes that might be very important to our biology. Um, there's been uh, major efforts uh, internationally. The Human Microbiome Project in the United States, funded through the National Institutes of Health, the Medihit Consortium in the European Union, and other major contributors like the um, Beijing Genomics Institute, have um, you know mapped the complexity of this microbiota and. Um, it's it's really clear that um, these microbes are, um, you, you know, very helpful. They um, they educate our immune system, and in the absence of these microbes, um, there are major deficiencies in things like development of the immune system. And one of the major challenges in defining a healthy microbiota is really identifying a healthy microbiota. And there's um, some talk that the microbiota of Western civilizations that's been the major focus of this research may actually not be the most healthy microbiota to study because of the highly sanitized um, antibiotic-laden uh, environment in which we um, live. We need to get and, back to nature more, I guess, Justin. We're yeah, going to have exactly. to leave it there because uh, otherwise we're going to put the squeeze on on the guys who are desperate to demonstrate what's living in the loo. But Justin Sonnenberg from Stanford, thank you very much. Joe Verin from Manchester Metropolitan University, thank you very much. And Liz Socket from Nottingham, thank you very much. Now, having spent a lot of time talking about microbes that are much smaller than a thousandth of a millimetre long, we're actually going to try and look at some. You do need a microscope for this, but Ben and Dave have come up with a simple way to make one using a laser pointer. Experiments in your kitchen. Science Night on 5 Live. So Ben, how does this work? Tell us. Well, we will come back to the laser pointer itself in just a minute. But first, what we need to do is find a source of bacteria. So we're going to head out of the studio now and out into the office area that is full of banks of computers. Lots of people very busily doing their research, finding important news stories, of course. We're just walking past the guys who've been answering the phone for you all evening. And the reason why we're walking through here is because we're looking for the place that we hope will harbour lots of bacteria, which is quite predictably the toilet. So we're now entering the hallowed ground of the Five Live on-air priority potty, which has been used by all of the most glamorous people at Five Live. It's been graced by many a glamorous bottom. Dave, what do we need <laughs> to some do? some unglamorous ones as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought we want to get a sample from inside the toilet, which is looking particularly pleasant at the moment. So Ben, if you'd like to get me one. This is absolutely foul. Hold on, Dave. <laughs> There we go. The things, just ruin the, there. The, the things we do for work. So I'm going to actually put my hand down into the toilet bowl to get a sample of water. Now, what was in there? Oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> um, but let's find out if it's got any life in it. So um, I'm going to carry this back through 
hopefully without getting any of this water on me. So now, Dave, what do we actually need to do with this sample? Well, normally you'd want to use quite an expensive microscope. Microscopes are expensive. They've got very, very accurately created um, glass lenses in them. And you'd have a look at it, and hopefully you'd be able to see something swimming around in there. Now, this is all a bit high-tech and a bit expensive, so we're going to do something far, far cheaper involving a five-pound laser pointer. So these are the sorts of laser pointers that you might use if you were giving a presentation or that sort of thing. But, but what, how can we use that as a microscope? What physical properties do we need to rely on? So instead of using the glass as our lens, um, we're going to use a droplet of water. So I'm just going to suck up some of that water in a syringe and then try and get a droplet off the end of the syringe. Okay, so this has to be a sort of spherical droplet. Is it the shape that's important? Um, That is important. Um, Lenses are curved, and this bends light, um, which is going to be very important in a moment. I'm now going to turn the laser pointer on. And while Dave turns the laser on, I'm going to dim the lights in here. Now, we are pointing the webcam at this at the moment, so if you want to see what we can see, then do please look at the webcam. What I can see right now is a bright green dot, just like you'd expect from a laser pointer, while Dave aligns it. And it's glowing very brightly on the screen. But oh, oh! What? Now that Dave's got it lined up well, instead of a dot, I'm getting a really bright green glow. But it, it's not consistent. Um, I hope you can see this on the webcam. There are there are things floating in it, little circular rings of shadow that are just moving around through this diffuse green gr- glow that's filling up an entire meeting chart. Dave, what's happening? For a start, how is that so big instead of just the point? So what's happening is that curved droplet of water is bending the light inwards and it's coming towards a focus. Um, and near that focus, even a very, very, a very, very small object is going to create a shadow. The light's then going to kind of cross over itself and then spread out, creating this sort of metre across blob of light on the wall. So something a hundredth of a millimetre across inside the droplet is now blown up to maybe a centimetre across on the screen. So even though these things are, are tiny, because the light source and, and that in particular that focus point is so close to them, it means that the shadows they cast are very big. So what are these blobs? What do we think they might be? Well, these tend to these seem to be fairly dull blobs, not a lot moving around. So they could be dust, they could be bacteria, they could be dirt, they could be dust. It's very, very hard to tell. So I, we talked about going to the Blue Peter Pond earlier. So I've got some water from the Blue Peter Pond, which might be a bit more exciting. Now, true to form, this is one that we prepared earlier. So this is actual Blue Peter Pond water. Now, toilets, of course, we think of as being unhygienic places, but they're reasonably clean because it's quite clean water the blue peter pond water is absolutely livid with things we're getting the same bright green with lots and lots of little circular blobs some of which are sort of squidging along and seem to be moving so if they're moving around they must be alive i'd have thought because things can be moved around by the water but some of them are actually swimming around and kind of swirling around the place so i'm pretty sure those are some kind of bacteria with some kind of little um, flagella on the back acting like a repeller pushing them along but to be honest, I'm a physicist, so exactly what they are, I couldn't tell you. Well, we do have a microbiologist with us. Joe, what do you think we might be finding in a pond? Well, I'm, I'm looking at it from across the, 
I'm looking from across the room. I would imagine in a pond you'd be getting um, algae and you'd also be getting some protozoa. So they look a bit bigger than what you saw before in the toilet water. And you can see that some of them seem to be uh, moving actively rather than... um, rather than just sort of floating and being washed around. So, so I reckon algae and protozoa. So we've not got microbiological proof that presenters have been weeing in the Blue Peter Pond. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's not impossible. <laughs> Dave, this, this is beautiful, but could it make a practical microscope? Very unlikely. You couldn't get a good enough picture. Well, there we go. So you can make a sort of a microscope that makes a beautiful picture using a laser pointer and a bit of really quite unpleasant water. Ben Vassler and Dave Ansell, thank you very much. Uh, just time to mention Barry in Surrey, who says he'd recommend setting light to farts then as a way of sterilising them. And Keith in Hertfordshire says, well, how much protection would the thong give you? That's it for this edition of Science Night. Thank you to our guests for their insights and to you at home for listening and for taking part. We'll be back with another Science Night next year. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out a bit more about The Naked Scientist, find us online at nakedscientist.com. Howard Benson was the producer this evening. My name's Chris Smith. Have a very happy new year and goodbye. First for breaking news and the best live sport. This is BBC Radio 5 Live.